In this week's show, we are discussing foreign intervention and the refugee crisis with our guest Joey King from Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is in the forefront of exposing the true cost of war since 1985, and they have about 100 active U.S. chapters plus chapters in the U.K., Ireland, Mexico, Japan, and Vietnam. The chapter in Nashville was formed in 2003. Uh, Joey King has been an ESL teacher in Nashville for almost 15 years and teaches English to refugees uh, for the last five years. He served in several military roles and graduated from prestigious military schools. Uh, Mr. King, can you tell us a little bit about your military experience and what led you to resign and become part of Veterans for Peace? Sure. Um, I spent uh, four years in uh, college ROTC at Tennessee Tech University in Cookville in the uh, 80s and then uh, got into um, uh, the infantry. I was an infantry officer and uh, went to uh, you know ranger school, airborne school, all that kind of stuff, and I was assigned to... 82nd Airborne and the um, paratrooper unit over in uh, Vicenza, Italy. And so, uh, fortunately, I was in, um, uh, in my service time was during um, during peacetime, so I didn't didn't have any combat experience. And then, you know, soon after I got out, I just started investigating more and more and more and finding out, you know, that a lot of the things I was told was was not really true, and and uh, and and became. A member of Veterans for Peace, you know, in 2003, and and uh, been uh, been uh, preaching the message of peace for a lot longer than that, but uh, been doing it through Veterans for Peace for a while. So, how did you get involved with working with refugees? Um, <clears throat> that's an interesting story. I ended up um, working at a sales job, and I was in Chattanooga at the time. I'd taken a company transfer, and uh, was was working for. Um, a company and just waiting on a customer in a, in a lobby and was thumbing through a magazine that was sitting there and it said uh, in the back of the magazine had an ad for um, English as a second language teacher. So it said you can travel the world and teach English and that kind of stuck in my mind. So when I moved back to Nashville in 2000, I decided uh, to pursue that. So I found a, uh, uh, there's a state agency called Tennessee Foreign Language Agency that it was just getting kicked kick-started basically to do um, uh, teacher training. So I went to their teacher training course and uh, I've been teaching ever since. I haven't taught overseas, but uh, I've been teaching in Nashville for about 15 years. And what kind of refugees are you uh, helping? Uh, at the moment, uh, my refugees are from uh, Burma and from uh, Bhutan. How is the refugee process like, and how many people do they usually bring to the Tennessee area? I know that the different states have different rules about that. Yeah, it's a quota system, basically, um, that we, we take in in Tennessee. I, I don't exactly know the numbers. Uh, the organization I work for has the contract uh, with the state to teach um, teach the refugees uh, here uh, in, in Nashville. So it, it is kind of a long process. Um, some of my students have been in refugee camps for 20 years. I've had students who are actually born in the refugee camps, uh, you know, let's say in Bhutan, who had never set foot in Bhutan, but when you ask them, they'll tell you they're Bhutanese, and, you know, they, they were actually born in Nepal um, at a refugee camp. So, um, you know, it, it's... It's a tragic story with a lot of these people. Uh, 
I've had amputees, you know, who have lost an arm in, uh, or uh, a joint or some kind in, um, in combat or just been part of a torture campaign. So it's, um, they all have pretty, pretty horrific stories. There are many things I want to discuss, but um, to start from this idea of the U.S. being involved in uh, other people's uh, conflicts, either both in a, in a positive way and a negative way. I had a friend who would say, well, when we go and, and liberate people, we end up the bad guys because we, um, you know, we stir up the pot over there. When we don't get involved, we are the bad guys because we're letting people die. And then when we're involved in a, in a limited way, kind of like with um, Libya, then we're still the bad guys because we uh, didn't let the, the dictator stick around and now the terrorists took over. Or we let the dictator uh, stick around and then we're bad because we're supporting the dictator. So can the U.S. ever figure out a way to work with their partners around the world where military can be used as a way to actually help? Or is it always bad and it's always opportunistic and it's always trying to destabilize different... Um, I think it's probably more the latter. From a constitutional standpoint, we really shouldn't be outside the U.S. unless there's some kind of you know, imminent threat, which really hasn't existed you know, arguably since World War II. Um, but you know, we end up creating... Uh, I guess there's a, a doctrine of unintended consequences, and we end up creating a lot more um, problems than we solve. They always point to World War II, even though the U.S. didn't get involved all the way to the end. You know, that was the time where the U.S. got involved and they actually helped. People who have a positive view of military intervention, they'll always use that as an example. And then everything else that has happened since then well, it was mistakes or it was just poor administration of, of the resources. Deep inside, we want to help people like we did in World War II. Well, there's lots of ways to help. I mean, uh, you know, Mexico and Ireland have non-interventionist policies and, um, uh, you know, they, they seem to be doing okay and, and they help a lot of people. It's kind of interesting when you talk to Latin Americans. Uh, they just really don't have this sense of World War II, you know, in World War One, that we do, uh, that there were good wars, quote unquote. Um, they just, they just really don't uh, see it that way because Latin America has always uh, pursued a, a non-interventionist policy for the most part, and, and and I think that's probably the better way to go on on on, um, on a whole. Okay, so speaking of um, the current events, um, just yesterday, Tom Hartman blamed foreign intervention for the rise of ISIS and the attacks in Brussels. Is that um, a fair thing to do? Sure. It, it You can trace a direct line from our intervention in, uh, in Afghanistan in the late 70s and early 80s straight to the attack yesterday. It's a direct line. There's no no denying that. Um, you know, that created, uh, that created uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which, you know, obviously... Uh, Osama bin Laden was a part of. Um, then we went into the Iraq War, the first Iraq War in the in the early 90s, and and uh, that alienated a lot of people. Like again, Osama bin Laden being one of them, because we had what they viewed as infidels in Saudi Arabia and and places like that. So um, yeah, you can draw a direct line from from 1979, uh, our intervention in Afghanistan, to what happened yesterday. Absolutely. So radical nationalist Arab groups have nothing to do with it, and jihadist groups have nothing to do with it. It's just us 
poking at them and them coming after us because it seems kind of like victim blaming if that's the only way that, that you can look at the situation. Well, it is a chicken or egg situation. Uh, in which came first, the chicken or the egg? If you want to go back to Richard the Lionheart killing 3,500 Muslim prisoners that you know probably no one in, in you know, the United States knows about, but every Muslim knows about, um, uh, they, they would say that's the start of it, and that goes back to the First Crusade. You know, uh, it, where, where do you want to draw that line? You know, Martin Luther King uh, said that uh, violence only begets more violence. Well, he's getting that straight out of the Bible, and Gandhi said, you know, an eye for an eye lead the whole world blind. So it really depends on where you want to draw the line. Do you want to draw the line with Richard the Lionheart, or do you want, do you want to draw the line at our interventionism into uh, Afghanistan, or do you want to draw the line in uh, September 11th, or do you want to draw the line yesterday? It just depends on where you want to draw the line. In the presidential debates, there has been a push for a stronger military. Both Kasich and Trump seem to want to start wars with everyone. How does it make you feel when you hear politicians who have never served in the military speak in this way? The term we have for it called chicken hawks. You know, they're awfully good about sending someone else's son or daughter off to fight, but they didn't want to do it themselves. You know, Trump had five deferments in Vietnam, uh, yet he's he always felt like a soldier. Well, very, very, very few people had five deferments, and you normally had to have political connections. And the only two people I'm aware of that had five are um, people like Dick Cheney, who had five deferments, and um, Donald Trump, who had five deferments. Uh, just very, very, very few people got that. They were politically well-connected people. But, you know, Ted Cruz and, you know, just going down the line. They, they, they're always anxious to send someone else's children off to war. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, there's a good quote by um, uh, Orwell, George Orwell, that went something like, uh, you know, for all the screaming of the war hawks, you notice they're always willing to send someone else's children into war. And, and that's a perfect case of this. What we don't realize in this country is that the United States spends more than any other country by far. We Half of the world's military dollars, year in and year out, you know, been following this data for 15 years, but half of the military dollars spent in the world are spent in the United States. We have 5% of the world's population. We have about 25% of the world's wealth, yet we spend half of uh, or all the military dollars are spent on uh, by the United States. So we are already spending way, 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 way more than anybody else, and we're spending way more than can be justified by our percentage of the wealth or by our world population. We should be spending about 5% of the world's dollars should be spent with the United States on uh, the military, yet we're spending about half. And you ask Americans how much, if you counted up all the world's military dollars, how much is spent in the United States? You, you know, I've done this as a thought experiment. You'll get about 10%. Most people say maybe 5%. They have no idea that we spend half of the world. So, the, you know, put another way, we spend more than the rest of the world combined. It varies year by year, but it, it hovers right around that that uh, that uh, figure. Why is that? Why do we spend so much money? Is it uh, something that was set up after World War II to be able to say that we're the strongest uh, country? Or is it... Like they say that it's the people that make the weapons that are controlling the where the money goes, and they are all friends with the politicians, and they're selling them more and more. Every congressional district has some kind of military um, uh, contract in it, and Pentagon is very smart about that. And it, it does have to do with World War Two, but you know, if you think about it, Mar Morris Berman, who's a philosopher, got so fed up with the U.S. he lives in Mexico now. 
uh, said something pretty interesting. And basically it said that American history, dating to 1607 when the Virginia colony was founded, has always been defined as the other. First it was Indians being the other, and then 1619 it was black people being the other, and then later it was the French and the Spanish and the Mexicans, and then, you know, 100 years ago it started being the communists. And you can pretty much define American history uh, uh, from 1607 till today as being obsessed with the other. And and that has a lot of profound consequences. One is the military spending. Uh, we had plenty of military spending before, uh, you know, before uh, World War II, uh, plenty of times in our history. Um, you know, slavery was ended in every country in the, in the New World without a war except in the United States and in Haiti, which had a slave revolt. And it, it's this whole obsession with the other. What is the other? Who is the other and let's protect ourselves from the other and you know it's, it's kind of an interesting thing a good friend of mine was at the va hospital he'd cut his hand he just went to the emergency room to get a few stitches in it about five years ago he was talking to a young man beside him who had just returned from afghanistan this young man said yeah I'm, I'm guarding the perimeter well you know afghanistan is now the perimeter of the united states well the same thing can be said when tennessee was added to the union in 1796 well that was the to guard the perimeter of uh, virginia and north carolina and then later on we added our Arkansas. Why? Because we were getting Indian attacks from, uh, you know, Tennessee was getting too many Indian attacks. So we had to guard the perimeter and then it just went right across to California. And in the 1898, we have to acquire Hawaii and uh, Guam and Cuba and Puerto Rico from Spain as part of the perimeter. And, and now the world is the perimeter and, and it's this obsession with the other, you know, and it, 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 you can date it to 1607 or you can date it after World War II, whichever you choose. It's still part of the American psyche. So people have compared uh, Donald Trump with uh, Benito Mussolini. Um, I see him more like uh, Richard Nixon, attacking protesters, sending more troops just out of selfish pride, not a quitter. They never talk about the toll that it takes on the soldiers, their families, and the people from other countries. Do you see that happening too? That you know they just start wars to prove that America is tough, and then they don't really care about the consequences. The soldier after the war is always the forgotten one. Um, there's an old Bill Monroe song from the twenties called the "I'm Just a Poor Old Soldier." Uh, the Monroe brothers did it back in the late twenties, and uh, they were lamenting about the plight of the World War One soldier who who came back. If you ever heard of the Bonus March during the Great Depression, where World War One soldiers from all over came to Washington in the early 30s and uh, General MacArthur, who was a one-star general at the time, put down this uh, rebellion by the soldiers. It's it's always been that way. And, and you know, it's just like we were talking about earlier. They're, they're always happy to send someone else's kid to be killed or maimed or uh, have post-traumatic stress disorder. They're always very anxious to do that. And I think, you know, Trumpism, uh, whether Trump is elected or not, will not die in November. Uh, Trumpism will go on. And I'm, I'm afraid that uh, if Trump is defeated, that his followers will feel like they have no other choice other than violence to resort to. And we're going to have uh, similar to 1968-type violence, you know, in the wake of the Vietnam War and, and everything that was going on in the Democratic Party. I think we're going to see something like that. I hope I'm wrong. I'm afraid we're going to see something like that. We're already starting to see signs of it, you know, with, at Trump rallies where people are getting punched out and, and uh, you know, Trump is egging them on to kick that guy out or put him in the hospital or something like that and it's setting a really bad tone that i'm afraid uh, it's been there but it's been muted and I'm, i think now it's it's sort of coming to the forefront as as you know quite frankly white people are uh, on the last verge of being a minority and this is sort of what happens when you have, have had a had a majoritarian uh, rule by one group and and it's sort of slipping away and unfortunately we're going to see some social unrest 
as a result, I'm afraid. Everybody's talking about people are angry and this and that. I want to know why are they angry? I know that we had uh, economic problems in 2008. I know that people might not have the best jobs or the best medical insurance, but it's not like we are in a third world country where people are starving and struggling to survive. People are very comfortable. Are they being incited to be angry about stuff that, that doesn't really affect them? Where is all this uh, hatred coming from? Is it just paranoia? or Dr. Noam Chomsky may have the best um, view on this. Um, I think it's, it's an intentional... Um, step-by-step -step process. It started right around World War One when um, the American public re-elected Woodrow Wilson you know, on a ticket that he would not send our boys to fight a European war in 1916. And all of a sudden, six weeks later, the opinion changed. Well, the opinion changed because of uh, some very brilliant people who were marketers who were hired by uh, Wilson to change the, the minds of the American people. And it only took six weeks uh, to where... They elected someone who was not going to get us into war to where war fever was going on. And it's it's kind of a process. And, the you know, to be frank, the uh, fascists in Europe studied uh, the processes that we used in World War One on how to do this. And part of that is alienation, to make people feel atomized, you know, A-T-O-M-I-Z-E-D, where they're just individual and they're not connected to anyone. The Internet has further, you know, fueled that. Although we're connected in one way on the Internet, you can chat with anybody, uh, you know, in Brazil or wherever you want to. In other ways, we don't even know our neighbor across the street, and it makes us feel more like no one cares or no one's connected. And I think that's a really, really big part of it with what's going on. Uh, just, just this feeling of not being connected. And I agree people have the right to be angry. I just think that, you know, a lot of people are angry. They don't understand. They've been so confused. They don't understand what they should be angry about. I mean, we, you know, we don't really have a good health care system like they have in Europe, for example. Uh, the the the, we have less social mobility than you have in Europe, uh, although that's the reason we fought a revolution. So it's uh, what they, they will tell you on the other side. It's it's just not bearing out to be true here. You you if you're born into a class, you stay in that class. And people understand that there's something wrong, but they just haven't taken the time to get deep into it. Uh, Americans are notorious for a short attention span. You can't keep. Uh, you know, if it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, you can say it in 25 seconds. It it just gets lost on a lot of people, and you know that's one reason why I'm glad we have places like Radio Free Nashville, where who people want to think about things can think uh, think them through a little more and talk about. Them. And I think that's a lot of why people are upset. People like Bernie Sanders are kind of tapping in on that. And if you want to think of Bernie Sanders as kind of uh, the next iteration of the Occupy movement we had a few years ago, and Donald Trump as being the next iteration of the Tea Party that we had a few years ago, I think that's a good way to look at it. And the same thing that had people upset, you know, when the market crashed in 2008, really haven't been resolved because the people at the bottom do not have any more. The corporations are getting rich, but the people are not. So let's talk about scapegoating. I know that this has happened in the past with immigrants in the U.S. You know, they used to blame the Irish and the Italians, and now they blame uh, Mexican immigrants. But this whole idea of blaming Arabs or Muslims for what a small group of people do, the one thing that I see that can be compelling to the public, when you bring refugees or immigrants to a country, unless you do a very thorough background, and how do you know who's going to do something? This idea of like, well, we'll just keep all of them out seems an easy way to address 
the issue is is part of the paranoia to start saying well let's not even deal with them it's part of the propaganda that is arising around this issue people are screened you don't just one day walk up and say i am a refugee the un screens you and and determines if you are a refugee or not I mean, we don't have any refugees from Latin America anymore. I mean, we've got plenty of problems in Latin America, especially in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And we've got a, a lot of people, uh, you know, trying to get to the U.S. because of the, you know, mainly drug war violence in those countries. But they're not refugees. Refugees are a very, very, very specific designation. When I first started fooling with refugees a few years ago, there were about 40 million of them. Uh, now, five years later, we have 61 million that has increased uh you know last year i'm talking 2014 uh, was the first year that the number of refugees went over 50 million since world war ii basically since the u.n created the the refugee documentation system that we have today that increased 11 million in one year now just to give you an idea the u.s was taking when i first started half of the U.S., uh, half of the world's refugees. Only 1% of the refugees get resettled. That's another big misconception. When you ask people, the average person, how many refugees get resettled, they'll tell you 90, 95%. The true fact of that is it's about 1%. And when I first started five years ago, we were taking in half of the world's refugees. The other half went to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the European Union. Um, but the problem is we were only taking in about, I forget how many, in the hundreds of thousands, and there were millions coming into the refugee system every year. So there were way more coming into the refugee system of the UN than were uh, being resettled. I'm talking about permanently resettled. I'm not talking about like the... Uh, uh, the Syrians who are, you know, in, in Turkey at the moment. That, that's not a permanent, that's a temporary resettlement. That's not a permanent resettlement. I'm talking about people who are permanently resettled. Only about 1% get permanently resettled. Out of all those 60 million, you can figure that about 1% each year are going to get resettled. So it, it, it's a huge problem. And to think these people are not screened by UN uh, you know, people who are trained at the UN, it's just insanity. It's just a, it's just a complete lack of knowledge of what's going on in the refugee system. This thing about, you know, blaming the U.S. for the refugee crisis, I know that in some cases like Iraq and um, the U.S. was at fault for creating a refugee crisis from people in that country. But in Syria, other than supporting the dictator, if they've done it, um, you know, willingly or unwillingly, uh, a lot of people say, well, it's not our problem for us to send troops or to take in refugees. Do you consider this like a selfish thing or is there a point to that where people say, you know, we can't really take all the people, all the world's problems onto our country? Well, well I think you're, 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 you're not really looking at it deep enough. I mean, the problems that we have uh, in the Middle East and Africa are a direct result of how the lines were drawn on the borders in World War One. So we're, ta we're talking about in 1919 at the Treaty of Paris, and I highly recommend you read a book called Paris 1919. It's about 700 pages, some of the most tedious reading you'll ever do, I promise you. But if you'll read it, uh, it, it explains a lot about how those problems from that treaty 
uh, created what we have today. So, so to say that you know, we did not create the Syrian refugee crisis is to not look at a hundred years of history. Basically, the the European powers colonized from 1492 when Columbus uh, discovered the New World and colonized and colonized and colonized till there was no place left to colonize. And World War One was sort of that first explosion of the breakup of the colonial system. The result of World War One was the Treaty of Paris, which directly led to World War Two. But it also led to a lot of problems that we have still today. You know, for example, if you look at Syria and you look at Iraq, and you look at Iran, and you look at Turkey, you have the Kurdish people, the second largest uh, ethnic population without a country, because the British divided them into four, uh, four, uh, four different countries. Well, guess what? <laughs> a lot of the problems that we've had since, you know, the, the early 90s uh, in, in, in these places are a direct result of the Kurdish issue. Or the Pashtuns. The Pashtuns, you know, another group that that made the British mad, uh, were divided between uh, Pakistan and um, uh, uh, Afghanistan. Well, guess what? A lot of the problems we're having with the Taliban and whatnot are are the result of where the British drew the line in 1919. So, so to say that we are not responsible uh, for for uh, for Syria or for or the problem with the Pashtuns and the Taliban. It's just to throw away a hundred years worth of history. You just can't look at it that narrowly. Um, and, and you have to look at the whole picture. And if you want to start with 1919, where you know the British drew those horrible borders and you know created a civil war in Sudan that has only recently led to the split of the country, but that civil war lasted for 40 years. Well, it, it's because of the way they drew the line, and, and now we have North Sudan and South Sudan, or the way they drew the line in uh, Yugoslavia, which created a uh, you know, horrible war in Europe in the early 90s uh, uh, that are now the seven countries that they were before World War One. And, you know, you can go on and on with, with how badly that treaty still is affecting us today. So, uh, And America was part of that treaty that we forced on Germany and the Ottoman Empire. But at what point are the leaders of those countries responsible? I know that the U.S. either supports or not supports different leaders, but uh, I'm from Latin America, and when I hear people say, well, the reason the Mexico is messed up is because of the U.S., I'll be the first one to say, no, uh, the U.S. has done bad deals and stuff like that, but the Mexican leaders are the ones that are exploiting the population and then uh, working things out with the Americans. So what about the role of the the poor leadership in those countries? Sure. And, and lots of times it's leaders that we prop up. Um, you know, if you look at the Middle East, for example, we propped up Saddam Hussein. We're propping up the Saudis. We propped up the Afghan government before we propped up. We, we did a coup in, you know, 1953 in uh, Iran. We installed the, the, the Shah that caused the 1979 Revolution and, and uh, you know Latin America. The second CIA coup ever was in uh, the first one was in Iran. The second one was in uh, uh, Jacobo Arbonz in uh, in uh, uh, Guatemala in 1954. Um, you know, a, a lot of these. Uh, sure, there are a lot of leaders that are, are horrible in these countries. But a lot of times, if you look at it, uh, the U.S. or the West in general has propped up these leaders or installed them or instigated a coup, which is a war crime, 
to uh, prop them up. Um, sure, there's some bad leaders, uh, no, no question about that, and oppressive and ruthless. But when you look at it, a lot of times the, the, the person behind the curtain that's pulling the strings is often the United States or one of the United States allies, former colonial powers from uh, days gone by. I just interviewed a couple from Turkey, and I try to make distinctions between Western culture and Middle Eastern culture, and it wasn't working with them. They they weren't seeing it as Western and Eastern. They were seeing it as modern and traditional. So when they would talk about the negative effects of religious leaders taking over or politicians using religion for their purposes, it was always this thing about, Well, there's people who are trying to be modern. There's people who are trying to be conservative, traditional, stuff like that. I think you got two things going on in Turkey. For one, um, it's where Europe meets Asia. Uh, it's where the Christian world meets the um, the Muslim world. It, it's right at that border. Uh, you know, ten percent of Turkey around Istanbul is uh, is part of Europe. And the rest of Turkey is not. And I've been to Turkey. My last deployment when I was in the army uh, was to Turkey on the old Soviet Union border, which I guess now would be on the uh, country of Georgia border. Um, so Turkey is that flux there. So I think that's part of what what you were trying to get at with them. It, it, but the other part of it, too, and not many people subscribe to this theory, but I do. Um, Islam is going through a... a, a uh, Reformation. It's the only religion that has never gone through a reformation. I mean, you look at Christianity, you look at Judaism, you look at Buddhism, you look at Hinduism, they've all gone through reformations. The one that hasn't is uh, Islam. And, and I think as part of that, what they were saying in that is the old versus new, I think is really, we're going to look back at it a hundred years from now and say, ah, oh, that was during the Islamic Re Re Reformation. Um, you know, uh, and, and we never know how Reformation is going to turn out. We often don't know that it's going on when it's going on. And uh, we don't know if it's going to be conservative. We, they're bloody. They uh, can last hundreds of years. Look at the Protestant Reformation in Christianity, for example, how bad that was. I mean, we killed Indians all across this country as part of the Protestant Reformation. That was an outgrowth of it. And so, so uh, these reformations can be nasty things, and I think that's part of what we're going through. So I think there was two parts there with that Turkish couple you was talking about. The part where Europe meets Asia, and the part where, where they were calling it old versus new. I would say it's, it's a reformation that just hasn't been acknowledged. Now, I would say this reformation began in 1979 when, uh, when the Iranian Revolution occurred. That would be my theory on it. But, uh, we, again, you don't know about a reformation as it's going on, and it's, it's going on now and, and go on probably the rest of my life. I'm 54. See, but when people say that, um, you know, the Muslim um, world has issues with the U.S., maybe it's not that they only have issues with the U.S. They have issues, some of them have issues with um, becoming too modern too quick or they were already modern like Turkey and they decided to bounce back to a more traditional or even extremist position. Absolutely, yes. It's both. It's absolutely both. And I would say that's part of this reformation. Uh, uh, that that's going on within the Islamic world and how it's going to turn out, it's impossible to tell. So the, they were talking about Brussels and they're saying that uh, the North African community has been marginalized and it's easy for ISIS or other groups to tap into that um, disenfranchisement of the people 
But then you you have other cases like Al Qaeda where they were all educated, well fed, they were Lebanese or Saudi, and they were doing okay. So I always they shift the blame. So it goes from the U.S. is doing bad stuff over there and it's upsetting them, or they live in Europe and they're being mistreated. And there's always these, you know, the blame going around. And to me, it's like, when are they going to talk about why extremism is a problem? Exactly. And again, I think it's actually both dynamics going on. I don't think it's either or. I think there's a reformation going on within Islam, and I think it's uh, the West meddling in it as well. Uh, I think it's both. So since Americans don't understand this or have limited knowledge of that, then when it comes down to refugees, um, they're making these blanket statements like, well, they're all from that group, so we can't trust them. Sure. And, and, and I mean, well, let's just face it. Refugees don't come from uh, from uh, stable countries. Uh, they don't want to be here. They, and that's what upset me so much when when uh, Ben Carson went over and talked with some Syrian refugees and, and well, they they would rather be in Syria. You know, every student I've ever had has <laughs> told me that they'd rather be in their home country. Uh, but th- there is no home anymore. I remember listening to NPR about a year ago, and this woman said about Syria, said, you know, they should stay home and fight for their country. Well, there is no country to fight for. <laughs> There's about five different factions fighting, uh, if not more. And, uh, you know, it's a war of all against all. Uh, who are they going to fight for, you know? It, 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 refugees would rather stay in their country. They they don't want to, they don't want to um, uh, be uprooted and and leave their family and their homes and their their uh, uh, parents or children or whatever and uncles and aunts. They would rather be in their country. That's pretty universal, you know. Uh, and I've had refugees from many many countries, uh, uh, and, and that. That's one universal thing. They don't want to be here. They're thankful to be here. They're thankful, you know, we don't have war and our police departments are relatively uncorrupt as compared to their home countries. Um, but they certainly uh, would rather be at home uh, if possible. Tell me about this um, SJR 467 um, rule that they're passing in, you know, the. ACLU calls it a fear-based discriminatory measure that would t- turn our backs on families fleeing violence and terror. So what are they trying to do here in Tennessee against refugees? Yeah, it's just, you know, we, we need to be welcoming. These people, you know, I can't tell you how many of my students work at, uh, you know, let's say uh, a meatpacking plant. I won't name a name, but let's just say that I have lots of students that work in the meatpacking industry. They're, they're, I've had students there for 10, 15 years, uh, and they're working in a basically eight-hour shift, if not overtime. Uh, they're working um, uh, in, in a 38-degree room. Uh, they're gutting chickens or, or something along those lines, and uh uh, and they'll work there for 10 years, 15 years. I mean, you, how many Americans... I, I grew up in a small town about two hours east of here with a meatpacking plant. Um, and and they cycled through all the locals up there pretty quickly and ended up getting immigrant labor in because you couldn't find too many people that's going to work in that those conditions. You know, it's just... It's not a fun place to work. But uh, to say these people don't contribute... Gosh, I, you know, our hotels are filled with immigrants who are are, are working, um, uh, you know, at, at, as as maids or as servers or as cooks. Uh, you know, 
Jobs that don't require a lot of English skills are, are often filled by, by immigrants who are willing to do the job that Americans just won't do. Well, what is the what they're trying to pass in the state government here in t Tennessee? It's not showing uh, – uh, uh, I would say it's very unchristian. Uh, it's, it's just not opening your doors to people that need to have their doors opened. Uh, I mean, imagine languishing in a um, refugee camp for one generation or two, and 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 you're stuck there, and you can't really get a job, and you're dependent on the UN to feed you and give you clothes, and and maybe one bathroom for several people, you know, maybe two dozen people. Uh, uh, these people need help, and and we can help them, and uh, we we need to help them. I, I think that's what the Bible says. So the state of Tennessee is denying the entrance of more refugees, or are they oppressing the ones that are already here? And they're 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 trying to with that law. It's not passed yet, and it's not by any means uh, a clear shot that it's even constitutional what they're trying to do. Tell us about your organization. What kind of um, response do you get when you um, try to reach out to veterans? Try to protest uh the school of the americas or things like that do you get yeah we, we do a lot of things uh since you started with school of americas i'll mention that uh we uh, that organization was formed about 25 years ago and actually uh three of our members were in the original six that uh that were, were part of the part of the first protest uh all those many years ago and we've had plenty of plenty of people that go to columbus georgia every year uh for that it's actually moving this year it's going to be over the um columbus day weekend in october in Nogales, arizona uh is where it, where it's going to be this year so it's actually moving from columbus and that uh they're kind of a sister organization of ours uh the founders father roy bourgeois and he is also a member of veterans for peace that website is www.soaw.org. Um, our website, uh, where you can find out more about Veterans for Peace, is uh, veteransforpeace.org. Uh, and we have a radio show on Radio Free Nashville Thursdays at uh, 1. We started uh, at the beginning of the year, so we're pretty pretty proud of that. Um, we uh, also have a new launch called Veterans Challenge Islamophobia, and that's veteranschallengeislamophobia.org. And we're going to be speaking at a mosque um, on 12th Avenue Mosque, April 7th at uh, at 7 if, uh, p.m. If anyone would like to come, they're more than welcome to, to come to that. And uh, here are some of the things we've got to say about how we should be building bridges to our Muslim brothers and sisters rather than burning bridges. It's uh, very important. But, uh, you know, the original thrust of your question was uh, what do veterans think? And, you know, we, we march every year in the National Veterans Day Parade probably have for the last 10 years. And we always get a lot of uh, people that uh, that uh, you know are pretty amazed that we exist and and are real thankful that uh, we're we're marching in that parade. Um, you know, yesterday I uh, was we do a vigil on the twenty second of every month uh, at twelve o'clock at the at the uh, Legislative Plaza downtown in, in Nashville on the state capitol grounds uh, to. Uh, bring awareness that 22 veterans a day are committing suicide. That's every single day. One active duty and 21 veterans are committing suicide. Most of these people are not combat veterans. They are uh, uh, people who um, people who are uh, 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 not been deployed, often National Guard or reservists. 
and uh, so we're out there every 22nd of, uh, of the month at 12 o'clock for an hour just holding up signs just to highlight that 22 people a day die uh, from that. And I was wearing a T-shirt, uh, went downtown to do a little research at the uh, National Archives before we did that yesterday, and I was wearing a shirt that said VeteransForPeace.org, one of my T-shirts. And this guy behind the counter at the library was, uh, at the ar- archives rather, was just very, very thankful that an organization like that exists. Uh, you know, a lot of times I wear my shirt in the airport, and people come up, and shake my hand, and say, "Wow, well, I never heard of your group. What are they about?" So, uh, you know, it's mostly positive. Occasionally, we'll get something negative, but uh, you know, for the most part, it's positive. And I think that we have, um, we have, we have a little bit of street cred, so to speak, because we're veterans. We've we've served in the military. We've sworn to protect the Constitution, and uh, uh, you know, then then we're 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 uh, I think have a little more. Uh, you know, I also belong to the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. You know, everybody expects a Buddhist to be against war, but not as many people expect veterans to be against the war. So, uh, um, you know, when, when we stand up and, and, and say no more war, we're holding a street sign somewhere. If somebody's, uh, you, you kind of have a little more street cred, I think, than somebody who, who may be a avowed pacifist uh, who's a Quaker or a Mennonite, for example. So One of the goals of Veterans for Peace is to abolish war as an instrument of national policy. Um, you know, that's been one of the criticisms of Hillary Clinton, that uh, she's too quick to start a no-fly zone or, or to pick fight with another country. Um, is there a role for the military when the diplomacy doesn't work? Well, um, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton was was very instrumental in preventing Melvin Zelaya of coming back to Honduras in June of 2009 when he was ousted by a coup. Uh, not necessarily prepared to say that the U.S. Um, pulled the trigger on that coup. I'm, I'm still a little bit undecided on that. But did we support the coup afterward? Absolutely. And and. Hillary Clinton was very, very instrumental in that, uh, even hiring uh, an old Clintonista uh, named Lanny Davis to um, to support uh, uh, the coup uh, as, a, as a lobbyist. It's, it's pretty insidious. Um, she she is a war hawk, and I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, people just don't realize that. She is not a peacemaker. She is a war hawk, and, you know, the problems we have in Libya now are, are, are a lot of result of some of the things that she she did as Secretary of State, and uh, you know, she voted for the war in Iraq in 2003. Uh, so it's just she is just. If you think Hillary's a peacemaker, I, I would beg to differ. So you know, I've asked this to some of my guests uh, before. It's like why Americans are so gullible, and one of the guests um, didn't like that. He said people are not gullible; they're just misinformed or they they follow their their heart or their gut instinct do you think that um that's what was going on during 9-11 that people were so quick to support the government no matter what they did uh no i think they're actually propagandized again i was talking about a few minutes ago dating back to 1916 when uh woodrow wilson hired uh those very brilliant marketers to to turn our public opinion those techniques are still used naomi klein has got a a good book on this called the shock doctrine that uh took a lot of the uh things that the cia did um uh in the in the late 40s and and how that manifests itself so i, I would say the american people are propagandized uh more than um uh, more than other people uh and, and that's how it's 
swayed. And it's it's not just the government that does it. It's the military-industrial complex. The, the corporations are uh, as big a part of it as uh, as the government. So and it, it it goes right back to World War One. So did the war in Iraq ever end, or it has had like a like a stop for a little bit, and now is against ISIS, or in your eyes, it's been going on for thirteen years. Well, you you got to give Obama credit for trying to uh, to stop it as, as as much as he felt he could. Um, it, it is still going on. There's still drone strikes. We're still propping up the government. Uh, we're still trying to tamp down um, uh, the Kurdish as much as we can independence movement because you know Turkey is a NATO ally and uh, you know part of Kurdistan is in Turkey. So you you can't. You know, they don't want a, a, a Kurdish separatist movement to blossom. So it's a very complex situation. And, uh, you know, there's still a lot of drone attacks, which is a book called War Made Easy. is really quick to point out how, how dangerous the drone escalation has been. And uh, we've got mercenaries and special operations people still operating in uh, Iraq today. So um, we've been there since uh, about 1990, and we have never left. People think we have, but we really haven't. You know, we flew a no-fly zone, uh, and that doesn't fly itself. And, and we enforced a no-fly zone for the intervening years between uh, the, the first Gulf War and, and the, the second one. Uh, we were flying no-fly zones. Well, that's that's you know caused a million Iraqi kids to die, according to the UN analysis. So uh, we we've been there, and it's the reason we're there is oil, and we've been there since. Uh, uh, the early 90s and, and still there. So some of the figures that I've found about the the war in Iraq is that about 180,000 bystanders or civilians have been killed and about 5,000 soldiers. Are those numbers correct? No, those are pretty pretty fair numbers. Now, those are numbers that they can document. Uh, it, it's not num- necessarily numbers that they can estimate, but it's numbers that they can document. Um so, yeah, I, I would probably go with that as probably the best uh, that you can document, but it, it's certainly not the, um, you know, I've read numbers as high as a million uh, civilians were killed. And we only think about our 5,000, but we, we don't ever think about who we're killing, you know. I mean, um, there's a famous uh, question asked of Madeleine Albright um, about um, uh, how she thought the Iraqi embargo, uh, which the UN estimated killed a million children, and, and asked if it was worth it, and she said, "Yes, it was." She later backtracked that, but uh, her her first response when reporters asked her that a few years ago was, "Yes, it was." Uh, you know, our, our no-fly zone killed a million people, uh, children, uh, not people, but children, a million children. So. Um, it, we're, we're not counting the uh, cancer. Uh, Iraq has a very high cancer rate from from uh, depleted uranium shards that uh, come off those anti-tank rounds that are fired and uh, highly carcinogenic. Uh, you know, we're not counting those. We're not counting deaths like my friend who died uh, uh, in, uh, at age 49 from s- probably from some stuff he breathed into. Uh, there was an ammo dump that got blown in the first Gulf War, and he was downwind of it, and the VA documented he was downwind of it, and lo and behold, he gets pancreatic cancer. Was it caused by that? Hard to say for sure, but, you know, it, it probably was. His number's not counted in there. So these numbers are hard to, are hard to come by. 
you know, if you shoot somebody, yeah, that's easy. But there's a lot of things that, that, a lot of reasons people get killed in war that's not directly a result of gunfire or bombs. So what is the number, estimated number of wounded soldiers from Iraq that you know of? Uh, I'd have to go to Iraq body count to, to, to get that. I, I haven't looked at it in, in quite some time, so I really don't know. It's in the tens of thousands, but again, depends on how you count it. Um, should uh, post-traumatic stress people be included in that? I, I would certainly say so. Um, uh, I lost a good friend about a year ago, uh, hung himself. Uh, three combat deployments to Afghanistan with the uh, 82nd Airborne, and uh, 33 year old, years old, he hung himself. He gets counted in those suicide numbers, but you know, is he a casualty of war? Sure, he is. Uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that goes into those numbers that uh, that that should go into those numbers that don't. You know, uh, my my best friend in the world has got uh, post traumatic stress from back to back deployments in Panama in '89. He was stationed there when when we threw out Noriega, and then he went to the 82nd Airborne and uh, 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 got into uh, combat and and uh, has post traumatic stress disorder. Should he be counted as a combat wounded? You know, he's 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 certainly documented by the VA to be a, a casualty in, in that regard, and, and he gets money uh, for his uh, uh, compensation packet. But uh, you know, he's not counted as a wounded warrior, so to speak. So it's uh, it's a hard number to come by. It depends on how you de- uh, how, how you define it. And this uh, financial number you guys have on your website is it in the trillions? Like it was hard to read. Yeah, I think estimates around two trillion uh, is what. You know, they they estimate that 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 war is going to cost, and you know, there's a lot of things in that. You know, uh, again, you know, uh, my friend's PTSD settlement goes into that number uh, uh, because uh, it, it is a cost of war. You know, and, and uh, we just don't think about that. We don't think about how much it costs to send a a soldier over there. It it, it costs a lot of money. You've heard about um, wanting to recruit women in active duty or active fighting. Um, do you think that's going to happen? And my question is, having worked with um, uh, survivors of military sexual trauma, shouldn't they deal with that first before they start bringing more women? I'm I'm a graduate of the U.S. Army Ranger School, and uh, I think last June had the first two female uh, rangers graduate and a lot of people calling me and send me emails so what do you think and i said well i i'd, I'd say yes ma'am to those girls because they're, they're a lot tougher than i am that's no doubt about it uh, uh when you go through ranger school you um uh you you do what's called um phases you have different phases in ranger school when i went through we had four phases now they have three and if you don't graduate from a phase you can recycle so if you it's about a 50% washout rate for men uh, from ranger school. Uh, women was about double that in the first class. Uh, nine women started uh, the uh, uh, ranger course, the first ones that were let in. Five of them didn't make it past the first phase. They let uh, four of them recycle, and two of those graduated. So, um, uh, you know, two out of nine, uh, and those were tough people. I always told myself if I ever had to wreck to um, uh Recycle. I was not going to uh, uh, go, go ahead and get my tab. So they recycled and and finished ranger school, which is something that I would have never done. So, you know, the, uh, those two um, uh, female officers uh, definitely were 
were uh, uh, my hats off to them. Um, do you have a question about sexual trauma? I, I, I don't know that we're how to solve that problem. Uh, the this military sexual trauma is about double what the um, uh, civilian civilian rate is. So it you know. You know, for all you ladies out there who think you may want to join the military, just remember that uh, you're twice as likely to be a victim of sexual trauma than, than a civilian. Uh, it, it's just uh, horrible what is going on. And, and you know, I, I think the figure, if I remember correctly, for men being sexually assaulted by other men is about twice what it is in the civilian world as well. So, you know, it, it's... Uh, it's a long-running problem, and, and I don't know how we solve it. Uh, uh, I think taking the um, uh, legal process out of the hands of the commanders for sexual trauma is a way, because a lot of times uh, good, quote-unquote, good soldiers who have uh, sexually traumatized someone are often not punished because of the military um, uh, um, process, uh, military code, uniform code of military justice, which covers all the branches of the military, is uh, uh, more commander-based than uh, jury-based uh, or um, or whatnot, and and so the commander can often influence uh, the decision. And I think you know taking sexual trauma and putting it in a separate uh, uh, court system uh, may be an answer to help us with that. And do you think that the draft will ever come back? Let's say that uh, Kasich or Trump get elected, and they pick, and they pick a fight with. That, that's a really good question. Uh, if it does, um, um, the draft ended in '75, and um, I was in the class of 1980, high school class of 1980, and uh, I was in the first class that they reinstituted selective service. So still today, all men who are 18 years old must register for selective service. And I was in the first group that did that. There was five years where we didn't have a draft or selective service between 75 and 80. And um, the there was apparently a Supreme Court case that went um, uh, that that basically said that uh, you could you didn't have to give selective service to females because females were denied combat positions in the army and you had a better chance of promotion in the army, well, in the military in general, in combat positions. Uh, now, obviously, that uh, has been uh, taken off the table. Uh, women are in combat roles and um, serving in special operations, too, Green Berets and Ranger units and, and Delta Force and SEALs and so forth, or they're eligible, too. I don't know how many of them are doing it now, but... Um, uh, they may readdress that again. I, I'm opposed to a draft. I think drafts are uh, another form of slavery, so I philosophically oppose a draft period. And I think that would be pretty uniform throughout Veterans for Peace, that we would uh, we would oppose uh, a draft in any form. We're, we're actually opposed to selective service as well. It's just step one towards a draft. Kasich or Trump get elected, and they pick a fight with North Korea, with Syria, with Libya, with everybody. Where are you going to get all the troops where are you going to get the people to go? Well, we didn't seem to really have a problem, uh, you know, uh, recruiting people to fight in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, when I was in the military in the late 80s, we were, um, the U.S. military was uh, primed to fight two and a half wars. In other words, we, we could fight a two-front war, one obviously with the Russians and one with the Chinese, and then provide military support 
to another theater. So if there was ever a three-front war, we, we were prepared. To, that was the doctrine at the time. Uh, after Iraq and Afghanistan, um, they have uh, changed that. There, there's, they, they just realized that there is no way to fight a two-front war. Uh, even as big and strong as many people as we put in, um, uh, and I think part of that is because of the 1960s uh, and 70s anti-draft movement was so effective that uh, I don't think there will ever be a war again. They'll they'll try everything, or excuse me, a draft again. Rather, uh, um, I, I just really think that they'll try any method they possibly can because they know the minute they institute a draft that their kids will have to go or their friends' kids will have to go, and not just the poor. And uh, they'll. They'll uh, do anything in the world to avoid that. They're, you know, I mean, we fight proxy wars all the time and always have. That's something the British Empire figured out a long time ago. We didn't figure out until recently. So, you know, we, we hire mercenaries. Uh, you know, I could have easily, with my uh, uh, background, could have easily gotten I'm too old now, but I could have gotten a job at, with a military contractor. You know, I had a friend of mine who retired um, a few years ago, 22 years in the military, and they offered him a $250,000 contract uh, to go into the Rocky Green Zone, a guaranteed contract never to leave the Green Zone, uh, $250,000 a year. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll hire mercenaries the way the British did. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the French Foreign Legion, uh, but basically the French Foreign Legion will take anybody, and uh, after five years of service with the French Foreign Legion, They'll make them a French citizen. Well, guess who gets deployed first? The French Foreign Legion. They'll try that. Uh, they basically have with the, you know, if, if you're a, uh, in the military, you have an accelerated citizenship program. So they kind of have that already. They just don't separate them into a, 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 a segregated unit uh, the way the French do. But, uh, uh, you know, they'll try um, uh, getting any kind of, uh, of uh method they can short of a draft to uh, uh, to not have a draft, I think. Whatever clever thing they can pick up, you know. Uh, we hired the mountain yards in Vietnam to fight. Uh, they were discriminated minorities. So we had the, those guys fight for us. Uh, yes, the British had the Gurkhas. You know, I mean, it just goes on and on. Uh, we'll, we'll try proxies before we try a draft again, I think. And did they target uh, people with low income do they purposely go to those high schools? Yeah, they go to those high schools. Uh, you know, they target target the immigrant community. Uh, you know, and I think it's 18 months to become a citizen if you've joined the military, uh, which a lot of those people would have to wait five years. So, uh, you know, there's some incentives. You know, and if you've got, uh, if you're a citizen and you've got family in your home country, uh, that puts them at a higher priority to get your family members here. Any little trick that they can do to uh, to recruit people, they will. Thank you so much for your time. I know I ain't been here for a long time. Doing better on my own now, it's my time. It's what I chose, it's what I own, it's my life Last time I checked and looked it up, it's all mine I know I ain't been here for a long time Doing better on my own now, it's my time It's what I chose, it's what I own, it's my life 
Lift it up, it's all mine I'm on line, I'm on track, I'm just fine